Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is presented by the Unlearning Network. And me, my name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am your corner man. And I've got a sick ground game. Get in my guard, bro. Get in there. I don't know if you're an MMA fan or not, but either way, you are going to enjoy this interview. My guest has had a hell of a career. It continues to be. Robin Black's career has been shaped by what I would describe as an incredible force of will. Remember the line from The Matrix, do not try and bend the spoon? There is no spoon. And I think with Robin, there is no career. He's the one bending and shifting and changing to create the reality that he wants. He has gone from being a glam rocker, music TV and touring internationally, to being a professional fighter in his late 30s, no less, to being one of the world's most sought after MMA analysts. He has relentlessly forged his own path along the way and is now gearing up for an even bigger challenge. When we recorded this, he had recently shared with me that he was expecting a daughter. His wife, Erica, is, as I record this intro, as I speak right now, hours, maybe minutes away from labor. It is real close, and I am excited for them both. I think they're going to be wonderful parents, and, uh, and they're going to have a lot to say on that. But for now, this interview covers MMA, it covers content creation, but what I think it is really about is reinvention and the skills behind reinvention. So if you are hungry to forge your own path, and that could be professionally or part of a side hustle, that could be personally or creatively, I think you're going to get a ton out of this episode. Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Othership. Othership is a guided breathwork app. There are sessions to wake you up, to calm you down, otherwise help you get into the state of mind you need. I use Othership to do just that. And I will tell you something. I was not feeling great at the beginning of this intro when I sat down to do it. The missus and I had gotten into it a little bit. We were arguing. And I felt kind of bummed. It is always so funny to me how we can talk a big game about fighting and mental and physical toughness and then go and get our feelings hurt. In fact, some of the biggest and toughest looking guys that I have met have had absolute glass jaws when it comes to their own feelings. So we've got to manage that stuff. For me, I moved around a little bit and I put on other ship and I got my head straight. I messaged my wife and uh, then I brought my full attention right back here for you and for an interview that really made me jazzed about doing this podcast. There is just so much insight in here. I know you're going to love it. So now for my interview with Robin Black. Let's get into it. The path of working in media and fighting was kind of an interesting one because at first I kind of became part of a team of people. They were called Fight Network and they kind of built a 24-hour fighting channel. And so, you, you know, because that was my first kind of specifically big job, you don't understand that jobs end, that, that companies downsize or they go in different directions or they cut departments or, you know, your, the, your boss leaves or something happens. And that one, suddenly one day, um, you know, I was traveling to visit my wife who's in musical theater and we were in San Diego and I just got texts from people, uh, I got fired today, it was great working with you. And I, after the second and the third one, I was like, wait a second, these are all the people in my department. <laughs> So I found out later that day they had cut our entire department. And literally, overnight, 
I had no job and no real source of income. But more importantly for me, it was like I got to do the thing that I do in a and at that time, 2016 or something, 2016 or 2017, you needed teams to do it. They're like it seems crazy today because you can pick up your phone and talk into it on your YouTube channel and, and make stuff. But then you needed two cameras, an editor, lighting guy, you know, a studio, all of these things uh, to make your art and do your thing and continue growing. And all of a sudden I didn't have that. Um, and so I just started on my own. I realized, okay, I can find a new job, but the world is changing and there isn't just a job to replace this. And then I did look into it and I did see what was out there. Uh, but there suddenly this wasn't just representative of one company downsizing. Uh, it was a it was a moment of a technological shift. So I had to rethink entirely. OK, again, if I want to keep doing this thing that I love, that feels I feel compelled to do that, I wake up in the morning to 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 continue learning about. I have to figure out how to do it myself. So I figured out, you know, I watched a nine-year-old girl on YouTube teach me how to edit videos. And, you know, I, I slowly started building my own, uh, you know, YouTube, uh, social media, uh, any, any company that needed me to contribute something. And I had TSN, which is a, a linear television, the biggest sports channel in Canada. I had that. So at least there was some amount of income to pay my bills. But, uh, and I just had to slowly build you know, a modern business and a modern business now relies on do you make something meaningful and do you have an audience of people that want your thing that that and that maybe they can't get it elsewhere and they appreciate it and you and you work together. Uh, can you build that? Because if you can build that, you know, it's a it's a tricky one when we were talking about the process of of, you know, accomplishing something today. Nobody should say, how do I get into journalism or how do I get into lawn care or, you know, what, how would I get into um, the, the coffee business? The way you get into it is you start doing it like there is no other way now. The world, if you want to, you know, be uh, an expert at something or be good at something, the people and you want to get a paid job doing it, you want to work for Starbucks or Fox uh, sports or whatever, the people who will get those jobs already do it for free on the internet. So if you're going to do those things, you must be one of those people who begins doing it for free on the internet. And uh, I get the idea that free seems weird when you're a professional, but it's either that or nothing because there's a number of reasons, but one, you have to have an audience. That audience has to, to actually say, we liked what this guy does so much that uh, we will follow him if he works for your company um, or else you probably won't won't be able to do that because somebody who has that will, will do it. But more importantly, if you want to be good at anything, you have to do it thousands of times. If you want to be a great, you know, lawn care specialist, you want to be a great, you know, nail artist, you want to be a, a great um, uh, music critic, it doesn't matter what it is. You have to do the thing. And now you get to do the thing. You can do it. It's not. Don't think of it as being a music critic or an MMA analyst or whatever for free. Think of it as getting to do it for free. 
you, I can now do it without the overhead cost of needing a studio. I can sit in my place, get $10 worth of wallpaper, get two lights from Amazon for a lighting package for 95 bucks and talk into my iPhone. And now I can practice for free for a year or two years or five years or nine years until I'm good enough to actually do this thing. And so I had to do that. And uh, four years ago, uh, I, yeah, I had, all, I had a, a part-time job in television still and i was very grateful for it and i still have it today and i still love it um but i had to build this entire business and 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 i did and no matter whatever happens or how it changes uh this moment in time i i was able to to go from i got fired or our department got cut two weeks ago to i have a very successful business that that i get to do things artistically my own way and that's a pretty exciting thing so we started here because I wanted to give you a little context on how Robin came to be doing exactly the kind of work he's doing now. Uh, here is where we start to talk about the art of fighting. And, you know, the devil really is in the details. The little uh, micro adjustments that athletes make are incredible. Let's hear what Robin has to say. That's starting to really interest me. When you get down to that level two, it's like the fact that every time I throw a punch, there's slight variation and imperfection in it, no matter how much. Um, that is that is frustrating when you think about it, but I'm also thankful of it when someone's trying to punch me. Like that very, very slight imperfection that exists no matter how highly trained you are is good and bad in all things, in all sports. It's good for you and bad for you, and it's good for me and bad for me. So it's just sort of this constant mm -hmm. that's there, this constant variable that's there. And that, that I'm finding super interesting now. And uh, because now you start to get to this point where you're studying how long can you study? How did George St. Pierre or Tiger Woods or whomever get that good at something? You study it long enough, you understand the mechanism, and then you kind of get to that and you go, well, now what? So, well, I mean, if you're going to con continue to wonder about it and be curious about it, then the answer has to lie in sm small things, tiny, tiny little things, because he's not, Tiger Woods is not perfect. And, you know, the running back is not perfect and George isn't perfect. There's still, if we could have them stay young and fit for another hundred years, how good could they get? And it lies in these tiny little things. Is it weird that I like those tiny little things that I find that interesting? I always got into that as a martial artist. That boring stuff, like you're supposed to literally do that forever. I mean... And again, I'm, uh, for some reason, George, I spoke to him yesterday, so he's in my head as the example, and he's great. Every time I've ever trained with him and followed him around to interview him when he was fighting Bisping for that documentary and whatever, every single training session, I've watched him do 25 singles and 25 doubles and 25 knee taps before, as his warm-up, every time. He'll do that for the rest of his life. And then people will be like, wow, wow, man, beautiful double leg. It's like, it's not, there's nothing special about it. There's not, it's not a beautiful double leg. It's the same double leg that any six-year-old does. Mm -hmm. It's not the thing. It's him. You know, he, he, he is better. Uh, and that's cool. I'm trying to understand that, you know. Like, I don't know what we're all doing when we're doing, people like me are doing my job, you know, gorgeous uh, double leg takedown or look at that. Does that happen in other sports? Are they like- Textbook suplex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but are, is that happening in other sports? Like, you know, are we pausing to, um, 
to um, say, oh, look at the beautiful spiral uh, pass. Like, we're not just standing around going, amazing golf swing, gorgeous hit. Like, why are we doing that in my in mind? I guess because he's just very young and we don't know, we haven't looked at something else. Like, is anybody just saying, oh, what an amazing pitch, gorgeous fastball, you know? Like, it feels so rudimentary. But I feel like that's like saying, Oh, Prince, that's an amazing guitar. Gorgeous A-string. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, just saying, like, but look at the look at the shine on that bass. They're just tools. We're freaking out about how good these tools are, yeah. but the person, the musician is the thing. It just feels so primitive to me now. Um, but, but it's also primitive because that's my job, and I do see that job done, and that job has sort of been commodified, where it's just people going through the motion of imitating Joe, loving to see a cool thing. Right. Right? You know, sure. so, so yeah, it's a strange thing. But, but you know, it's not, George's double leg takedown isn't beautiful. It's just the same takedown he's done since since he was a kid. It's shiny and it's very clean and it's efficient, but it's him that's special, not the tool. You know, back when I used to do strength and conditioning for mixed martial artists, which, you know, is how I met you, um, I always found this idea of uh, just get people as strong as possible or as powerful as possible to be a little bit limited. You had to be able to feel what was going on, right? The the micro adjustments we were talking about, uh, those, those nuanced little touches, uh, a little faster than expected, a little slower than expected, a rhythm change. That is really, to me, what differentiates uh, the very best athletes from everyone else. What is, uh, what is the measurement that is just the feeling of me slightly, you know, 0.05% pu putting more weight on something or hesitating in a microsecond? Like, what is, but that's interesting, actually. This, um, what's his name, uh, that, that, that um, chess player who became, became a push hands champion? The fellow that Robin is referring to is Josh Waitskin, who was on track to being the youngest ever U.S. chess grandmaster. He switched. He got into Tai Chi, of all things, and push hands and competed at a very high level, which he, he details in his book, The Art of Learning. Uh, that's what Robin is referencing. Then he got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, getting his black belt under uh, who many consider to be the GOAT of BJJ, Marcelo Garcia. And now he's spending his time uh, hydrofoiling. He's a pretty fascinating person who stands out not just by his talent, but the amount of work that he puts into things to see things on that level is really a rare combo. Okay, let's get back to Robin. He actually did a really nice job of explaining it when I, it's been a while since I listened to his book, but, but uh, where he talked about the experience of slowing time is, uh, and that sort of relates to, it, it's true to to somebody training at that level too, where that's every day all the time. You're just able to identify and connect to more frames of information mm -hmm. in the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it, it may actually feel to you that time is slower, but time's the same. You just have more frames of information. Somebody can see three pictures in a second if I hold up three pictures of your son or a flower or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but somebody who's been doing the thing forever may see like 30 pictures in that time and so and identify them and, and use the information and that that will be experienced by the individual as a slowing of time. That's cool. If I were to write a, a book or make a film about a story of my life, not assuming that anybody would be interested in that, but just if for some reason that's something I was going to do, uh, I would start 
at my first fight, which was 10 days before my 39th birthday. And so I was literally turning 40, beginning to fight as a professional martial artist. To make sense of that, I have to go back four years to beginning to prepare to fight. And to contextualize that, I have to go back another 15 years to being a, a, mar to being a musical artist, traveling around, performing, and then living poorly, you know, making myself ill essentially from, you know, bad lifestyle, alcohol and drugs and, you know, just bad lifestyle uh, to make sense of any of that, you know, but essentially after kind of being a, a performer in my mid thirties, I made a very conscious decision that I was going to fight in a cage. Uh, and then that changed, that path kind of began the, the change towards, you know, where I am now, where I think of the world through the lens of, of training, martial artistry, change, growth, those kinds of things. But that kind of all started in my mid-30s, which is late. You know, one of the things that I want to tackle in this podcast is to really understand what kind of change and growth and learning is accessible to us as adults in our 30s, our 40s, and beyond. And I can tell you that there are a lot of false limits put in place. So are we going to have the same ability to learn at 40 as we will at four? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I would love that. But uh, in the meantime, we do have access to a lot and maybe more than expected. And I know Robin is such a great example of this. I wanted to hear what he had to say about it. Maybe illogically, I do believe that actually everything is possible. I, I sincerely believe that if there is something that, you, that you're committed enough to want to do, you can figure out how to do it. There are, there are lim limitations of reality that have to balance in there. Like if you're 30 and you've never played, you don't know how to skate and you say, I wanna be in the NHL, that's not going to be achievable. Reality will not allow that to happen. If you were seven and you said, I wanna play in the NHL, that we can achieve that. First, you're gonna to have to actually mean it. And that's probably the first barrier that stops most people. First, you have to actually believe it and it's gotta be balanced with it's somewhat possible. And those two things are going to be have a weird relationship because, you know, big dreamers will push the limits of what they believe to be possible. And, and some of them will achieve that simply by pushing the limits. But the next step has to be you actually are committed to it. Like when I said, I want to sing in a rock band and I want to travel the world, I didn't say maybe it'll be cool if one day I you know, woke up and I happened to be able to sing at karaoke, I was like, what would one do? How, how, what is the process to being a performer in a rock band? How does one do that? What is it? Like, and, so, and I think that's a big part of it. So first you have to have, have some kind of goal that you actually meaningfully want that is possible. That would be step one. Step two, you're, at, you're truly committed to it. Anybody can dream, wouldn't it be great if we were NBA players? Wouldn't it be great if I was a hip hop star? You don't know how to rhyme. Like you have to, so then the question would be, 
you want to be a, you want to perform uh, hip hop, you want to play basketball, whatever. What does that look like? Okay, well, what do people who, who um, have accomplished this, what did they do? How did, what was the process? What skills need to be acquired? Oh, you don't know how to acquire those skills? How do you acquire those? You just keep asking questions. You just keep asking questions. And, and the process is cool. There, there's, and, you, and there's a weird, and somewhere along the lines, these things all seem to start with P. And you have to be persistent, but and you also have to be patient. Like it's gonna, it's gonna take you a long time. If you, if today you don't know how to play basketball and you actually want to be a great basketball player, that will take you a long time. Who will actually do that? It's going to take you eight years, ten years. Who will actually do that? Somebody who's obsessed with it. So uh, the, these things. So yes, I went from. I still am not a particularly good singer, but that didn't seem to stop me. I went from just being a kid in a small town to singing in a rock band on very large stages all over the world, to you know living and training as a martial artist, to f actually fighting professional martial arts, to actually learning to add meaningful c context to it in broadcast. All of those things seem impossible, but all of those things were possible. But. I also never became a politician. I never became a professional golfer. I never became a, a, an investment banker because I'm not interested in those things. These things I was able to do because I was obsessed with them. And I was obsessed with the process. At the, the destination, will it be cool if I'm actually a singer in a rock band and make an album one day? Or will it be cool if I'm standing in a cage fighting? Wouldn't it be great if I fought for a title? Or wouldn't it be amazing if I got to work at TSN? Those things can sit there, but they can't be the, the driving factor. Because if they are, uh, you're just obsessed with a result. And the result is the product of an insane amount of process, insane amount of hard work. You have to be obsessed with the process and the hard work and the craftsmanship and being, you know, the craftsman's mindset. Um, when I went and said, you know, now I get, I have really, really cool, meaningful, challenging, fun uh, jobs talking about, about martial arts. I thought I could somewhat do this in 2012 when I started working at Fight Network. And now when I look back, I was terrible at it. I was better than, than the average person on the street, but terrible compared to where I am now. Why am I able to do it now? Because I studied and I worked really hard because I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with the, the path, the process. Like anything is possible if you're process oriented. You know, day after day after day, I've made 1,500, probably now, I've said 1,500 probably for two years. I probably made 2,000, 3,000 um, analysis pieces. I've commentated now over 500 shows, two or th between two and 300 we did in, a, in, you know, probably two to three a week, 50 weeks a year, so 15. So in, in two years, I did 300 of those, but each one, and nobody was watching. We were on a small cable channel in Canada, Fight Network, and not many people were watching, and that didn't matter. I did it, and then I did it again, and then I did it again, and then I got better at it. Then I went back and listened to it at some point and went, how could I be better than that? What, what am I missing? You know, how does the process work? How am I, you know, now when I look at, and, and this is sort of my new point with what I like to do now, Three years ago, I looked and I recognized, and this was a little more outcome-oriented. I recognized that what I do now, I talk about martial arts on television, that there is a ritualistic formula that's starting to exist for how to do that.
that expectations of how that formula is done are so low that most people quite rightly believe that almost any fighter can do it. At the way that three years ago I was looking around, I'm going, if all we're going to do is go through the 11 things that you say, striker versus grappler, knockout power on both hands, this, this is going to be dynamite, this has got fight of the night potential, you know, uh, the winner gets a title shot. Like if you're just going to say the 15 or 20 things that say, and that is going to be the, the expectation of, of how we're going to do this job, then yes, every fighter can do it. And I will not be able to do this job anymore that I love three, two or three years later because famous people with more following than me and, and who are more handsome than me or whatever will be able to do this job because our expectations are low. So I had to think, what could this job look like three years from now if I became um, exponentially better at it than I am now? And that process became, what is this job? How does this job work? What are we actually doing? Am I just sitting here saying striker versus grappler? Or do I look at camera two and say, you know, this one's going to be fireworks? No, what am I actually here to do? Okay, the goal is to truly, deeply analyze this, not play the role of a television analyst, but become an analyst. Okay, how do you do that? What is that? Three years ago, I was sitting there doing a job at a fairly high level, and I thought, what is this job? Okay, hold on, this whole thing's horseshit. Uh, what would this look like if I actually learned more meaningful things? How do, uh, how do freestyle rappers do their job? Oh, wait, this is their process. I have to learn that process, right? How does a jazz, um, a jazz musician uh, improvise in the moments? Oh, what is their process? I have to learn that process. That process of, of actually being capable of having meaningful information and being able to use it in a, in a connective way in free flow uh, is a process one can study. And so I studied it, I, uh, I studied it. And now um, I do a different job than the people who now can go and do the job the way I used to do it. Now, it doesn't mean that the world will understand that, it doesn't mean the observers will, will recognize it, but I'll know that of the 20 possible way, places one can sit next to a ring or a cage and do this job, Two, three, four of them will recognize that I do it different and that'll have some value to them and I'll get to keep doing this, right? And so it's all just an ongoing process and the, driven by the recognition that wherever I am now today, if I continue to get better, will look primitive compared to what I could get to. What does that look like? What will that look like if I get there? If I get there and I think that's it, what would it look like if I could get 10 times better than that? What would, what is 10 times better? Is, and when, like I said, when I, when I sat down and said, my job is in jeopardy in 2021 or 2022, if I don't change, I didn't even know what the change could look like. I didn't know until I studied some freestyle rappers and some jazz musicians and some improv uh, performers, how that worked, but that that actually was a skill. What if I could develop, and, and, and how to study poetry and how to be poetic in these moments. If I didn't study those things, I would lose the ability to do the thing I love. And so I just, these things just keep mutating forever. There's no ultimate destination. It's, a, it's a, the belief that there is such a thing as perpetual growth. So when I wanted to be a performer and a singer and a frontman, and in my mind, frontman was the root. Now, it was partly because I could do that. I could lead a party. I could make the audience laugh. I could sing good enough to, to put this whole package together and create this entertaining thing. 
but there were so many, when I moved on from that, I didn't realize sort of why. I was moving towards something new that was healthier, uh, more meaningful to me, you know, I thought my life would improve. Uh, it was a new adventure, it was a new challenge. Fighting was all of these things. But I didn't realize that I was also really frustrated and that, that some huge lessons that I learned in that period actually were part of the sort of the upgrading of my process. So for example, like you just said, well, couldn't really sing. Uh, but that's okay. I'll just get good at doing interviews. I'll get good at the lines in between. I'll say some classic things. I'll have good body posture. I'll, you know, use a, a real physicality. I'll wear cool uh, outfits. I'll be provocative in the way I behave. I did all those things. What I should have done is all those things and get better at singing. And that I just, it just somehow escaped me. You know, the the new other, the other, the things I was good at were easier to train and more fun to train, and they required less self-analysis and admitting of weakness and stuff, so I did them. But when it came time to go fight, I took what I learned from that, and it became, okay, I have to train the things I'm not good at. I have to train the weaknesses. I have to improve everything. I can't run away from something or disguise it with a cool outfit or, or flashy makeup or purple hair. Uh, I can, it's real, right? It's real, and it'll get me hurt if I don't do it. And so I learned that from there. And then a really big one, sort of process-wise, business process, life, you know, mechanically process-wise, we were, our band had a lot of, we had an audience that deeply cared about us. We would go play shows, 12 or 15 shows in England, and 300 humans would come. And they wouldn't just come because they were gonna, they, we were one of their favorite bands. So call that 3,000 humans in England. And we had a, we had, a, website and a, and a chat room or message board or whatever you called it at the time that was way more alive than than 99 out of 100 bands that would have seemed of similar size. We had real humans love our, our band, love, connect to us. And I spent 80% more time thinking about how to convince some asshole in a record company to spend money on us than I spent on the humans who already liked our band. And, and even then, we didn't understand the, the shape to which social media would evolve and the way you can communicate directly with people and the way that they can communicate with you and the relationship that you build with a real audience. But it existed still then, and we had it. And we, were, we, were the, we had the type of connective audience at that time that today would fuel a career and let you be artistically free because you had an audience that would do it. And I still spent, we spent so much time, make demos to send to A&R executives at record companies, all of this, you know, uh, uh, learn to speak the language of the, and so as we moved out of that, out of, as I moved into the fighting world, I found myself doing that a little bit again. All of a sudden I was in sort of the UFC's orbit and I'm sending an email trying to get an executive producer to understand what my artistic thing is, rephrasing things a certain way, trying to set up a certain meeting with a certain vice president of whatever. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, I'm like, wait, I'm, I'm doing it again. None of that is the right process. You know this from experience. And that helped me reshape back to make cool shit and get it to people for free. and. And it's now a fundamental philosophy that I have, which is spend almost no time trying to find new audience. Spend almost 100% of your time 
being grateful for and, and, and creating value for the audience you already have. And when I had 100 people that watched my, my um, uh, you know, counterintuitively, that actually grows your audience. But it doesn't do it if you're doing it uh, facetiously or you're doing it with an ulterior motive of growing your audience. It only works if you're actually trying to not grow your audience. It's really weird, but it's the opposite of the way that I used to look at it now. I used to, how do I get the gatekeepers to like give me permission to like make a record? We didn't need any of that. We are the two records that we made with big, you know, skilled, talented producers. We didn't have big record companies. And yet we were still trying to like get into that club. And now, you know, I'm happy when a company comes along and says, we'd really like you to do your thing with us. And I treat them great and I, I'm grateful for them, but I'm not seeking them anymore. I'm now making art for a group, you know, for a quarter million people that consume my stuff naturally because they like it and I like making it for them and they dig it. And something in that honest relationship actually has resulted in growing my entire business and, and having other people pay me to do my thing for them. But now when I do it, I do it entirely my way. And that process too, along with kind of figuring out how to do it in a different, anticipating that the future would commodify my job, and changing what, redefining what I think my job actually is compared to what all the handsome, more followed, uh, world famous fighters will do by the time I've changed. Also identifying, stop trying to figure out how to get people you don't have and be grateful for and serve the ones that you do. And those two things I learned from, from doing the opposite in the music business. And now it's just so natural and it's, and it's work, it is the, it requires the least amount of specific attention to anything outside of making cool art for cool people, and it and it works. Um, but it took it took me, you know, it took me twenty years and meandering through through um, the business of art uh, in different ways to kind of stumble upon this truth. That is so important. I'm glad you said that. I realized that very recently, like I was sitting there going, you know, I'm I'm busier than I even can handle doing better work, cooler work, uh, that I, I'm doing it my way. People are like, How, what would you like to do here? Like the karate combat thing, literally, these brilliant shooters, directors, showrunners were like, okay, the camera on the steady cam is gonna find Robin. And then, uh, Robin, what are you gonna do? Uh, just do your thing. And then we'll move on to the next thing. And I'm like, holy shit. I've worked for so long trying to develop something meaningful to get to a point where somebody skillful would just trust me to do my thing and do it my way. And then I did it. And then I had a call with them today and they were just like, you did something that doesn't exist in the space and uh, let's figure out how to do it and help you take it up to another level next season. And that very truth is, you know, that's just existing now, uh, you know, 30 years into working in, in, um, in media where, where somebody trusted me to just do my thing based on what they'd seen me do. It worked. And now they're, we're going to take that thing further, but that happened. It, that would have never happened if I kept on that path of 
the right email to the right guy phrased in just the right way saying thank you for the opportunity to say knockout power in both hands striker versus grappler in a stylistic matchup in an expensive suit at your well-lit desk thank you so much for 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 giving me the chance to do that uh how can i uh, thank you and how do i get to say striker versus grappler in a stylistic matchup this one's going to be fireworks fight of the night potential in an expensive suit on a well-lit desk how can i do that again thank you so much uh i'd like to pay you some fealty now you know like that is one of the ways you can do the business you can literally go and play the role of of the thankful subordinate listening to the you know the old school producer and begging him to give you the chance to do the thing you worked your whole life on you can do that and that is one route you can take uh, and I found myself in there and I literally thought this is not right for me and if I stuck there maybe I would still be there but I would not be doing it I would not have gone down this road of figuring out how to redefine how I think the thing is done. I wouldn't have been curious and passionate, waking up in the morning, driven to, to create some kind of change in how I did it. I would have surrendered to the fact that this pays me really well. I don't get to be, I don't get to kind of color outside the lines, but that's okay. I'm very thankful for having it. And you just fall into the machine and, and that's okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a baby. I'll have to pay for them to go to private school one day. Sometimes you just got to surrender to the machine but i figured if i went the harder way instead maybe i'd be able to do all of those things and send her to private school and still be a individual artist and right now i am so but you know it'll change again and when it does you have to foresee the future stay driven to 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 be an individual and figure out how you're going to keep growing and 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 let it and and trust that that it'll happen and you'll make a few mistakes and you'll you'll adapt when you do You've got a pretty cool project going on right now. You want to talk about that a bit? One of the coolest things that I'm doing right now is uh, Karate Combat. Karate Combat was like a startup. And so karate is a ancient sport, but presented in a super modern way. And the people who were behind, besides being karate and martial arts obsessives, they're disruptors and innovators. And they were like, we could just go and do what everyone else is doing, or we can try and it won't be easy, but we can try to create the sport of professional karate. Uh, and they did that. And, and uh, I joined this season. And I, so I joined a team of free thinkers, innovators, paradigm dis disruptors, um, and I fit right in. And it's really, really cool. It's professional full contact karate in a padded pit. Um, uh, and it is badass. When you don't have a boss or you are the boss, you can try to innovate constantly. You can try and fail. No, no harm done except for the time you used. Um, but when you do get to work with cool people, you learn from the producers, you learn from the writers and the directors and all the people involved, but you work with other people. I'm working with martial arts geniuses, Lyoto Machida, um, he was a, a fighting world champion, and he's a genius, a life, lifelong martial arts genius. George St. Pierre, the greatest fighter ever. And Boss Rutten, who is just like a wild individual. He was a UFC, an early UFC champion, but he's also a lifelong martial artist and a world adventurer and a, and a different thinker. And you get surrounded by these people, these kind of people, you know, for long periods of time, you're going... 
unless you're stupid, and it's okay to be stupid, but unless you're intentionally trying to, to not to learn, you will learn things uh, constantly. And uh, actually, Lyoto Machida, I watch him, and he's constantly asking everyone he meets, what, what's your diet? What do you eat? How often do you train? Like, Leona Machida is asking the girl who's, who's, you know, fixing his hair and putting his wardrobe on about her diet and about how she sleeps and about if she meditates because he's, he's absorbing that from everyone around him. So, you know, that's really cool. We were talking before about that big window between finding out that you're pregnant and actually having a baby. Do you think we need that just to sort of mentally acclimate to the big change in life? I've thought about that so many times, that idea that this time between you're going to have a baby, you know, eight months from the moment you found out about it to that moment, that this time is is really fortunate. There's no, in, in, you know, depending on everything happens for a reason and how you how you explain the world around you, some people would be like, well, that's because we need it. You know, we need this time. And, but... Truthfully, some animals have babies in six days and some, some pregnancies last for twice as long. And some, we, we happen to have this. And that's maybe, that's maybe a powerful thing as to human survival and success is that we do have this time to be able to like, and there's this sort of, it, it seems ritualistic, uh, but maybe it is. It makes sense that it would be. Like now we're like, you know, getting her room ready. And then we've been saying things like when the baby arrives, like we're, you know, like, and everybody I know that's ever had a baby, if they're fortunate enough, has prepared a room for them. And then, then they get their place. And then, you know, what what's her name going to be? And all of those things start to kind of unfold. And uh, yeah, it it prepares you as much as you possibly can, which is probably going to feel like not prepared at all. Uh, the moment that she's born, but I felt like I was starting the dad game late at forty. But you've got some years on me. My, I'm fifty. I'm over fifty, and my wife is thirty-five. And you know, so there's natural challenges of being, you know, an old parent or an old, much older parent. But I would not have. I was nowhere near ready compared to today six years ago or 12 years or six years before that, like nowhere near. So there's always a trade-off, you know, I'm fit and I'm, and I'm mentally young, but I am older, so I will fatigue more quickly, but then there's more wisdom and knowledge and, and comfort and those things. So that trade-off is there, you know, so in physically or in some ways, it would have been easier to have a child younger, but I would have never felt as prepared or as capable as I do now. So that's an interesting kind of thought, too. It just makes sense. It all, you know, it, it, it makes sense right now. I feel, I feel as ready as one can feel about something they actually have no idea what it's actually going to be. <laughs> we know a lot more about how to be able to try to be a good parent now than in ever in human history, I would hope. Uh, so I have that to draw on and I feel somewhat prepared. So, but it's, yeah, it's exciting. Well, at least we've got that going for us. As of right now, Erica is three days past her original due date. We know that uh, babies don't always come on time. We cut them a little more slack than we do, I think, our UPS or our Amazon packages. I'm, I'm really excited for both of them. I want to thank you for hanging out with us today. 
Um, you know, like I said before, this is one of the episodes that got me really excited about this podcast. I always learn so much uh, and enjoy so much when I speak to Robin. Um, you know, in case you're wondering, my wife and I sorted it out. We, we smooth it out. There will be bumps. And I guess I'm sharing that not because it's anything uh, particularly dramatic or even interesting, just that this is how a marriage goes in real time. And uh, I want to present you with the straight goods. Thank you again for listening. A special thank you to my guest, Robin Black, to our sponsor, Othership, and to the Unlearning Network. You can follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. You can jump on the social media, the Dad Strength Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, the Dad Strength, uh, on Facebook. We've got a group going there. I hope you will follow us. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. Plenty more to come. See you soon.